Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time show. This is 3CR, community radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. Just wanted to send out a quick cheerio to Peter and Rob, who cannot be part of this show at this stage. Um, we're doing this, the show remotely from home at the moment. In the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, and it's still stage three restrictions. And whilst we are all committed to stopping the spread of coronavirus, there have been a lot of very, very disturbing events that have occurred. And in fact, over the last couple of weeks, we have been, the Doing Time show, along with other human rights organisations, um, has been monitoring the policing of COVID-19. And last week and the week before, we had a number of interviews that spoke about not only increased police powers, but also looking at the targeting of vulnerable communities. And indeed... At the end of last week's show, we spoke with Aaron from the Tamil Refugee Council and we looked at the Tamil family and spoke quite a lot about refugees and also uh, at the end of the interview spoke, in just, a, just touched on the subject of Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective and how him, he was arrested and charged with uh, inciting... To, uh, it's a 1958... It's a 1958 um, uh, thing that he was charged with, and we'll have a look at, look at that in more detail. I'm going to be speaking with Lucy Honan from the Refugee Action Collective about this shortly to, to look at that, at that law and, and what's happened. But today's show is basically a continuation of the discussion in regards to um, the police powers and also about the right to protest. And we're hopefully going to be speaking with Brett Collins from Justice Action and after after Lucy, and we'll be speaking with him about prisons and COVID-19. So just to, to give a quick intro, police show political bias on protesting once again. And I'm just going to quote quickly from the media release that RAC has actually put out, because today we're going to be looking at the right to protest in the context of the coronavirus. Um, restrictions and, and actually this has got nothing to do with the restrictions why why um, Chris was arrested. Just one day after police mobilised outside the Mantra Bell City Hotel in Preston to find three people exercising safely with pro-refugee posters a crowd of over 100 anti-lockdown protesters without social distancing has been 
allowed to assemble outside state parliament. Refugee Action Collective spokesperson Lucy Honan said the police had twice turned out in numbers to shut down socially distanced solidarity action with the 65 refugees locked up in the mantra and at grave risk of becoming a COVID-19 cluster. So that happened on Good Friday and they arrested one RAC supporter, Chris Breen, charging him with incitement and fined 30 refugee supporters who attended almost $50,000. The protest was not allowed to take place at all. And shortly we're going to be speaking with Lucy about all this and she'll explain it all. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show and we're welcoming our first guest on the show, Lucy Honan from the Refugee Action Collective. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Marissa. How are you going? Oh, good, thanks. Yeah, great to have you. Now, Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, we, it's, it's terribly important that you are here, um, really for the refugees, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's interesting. In, in, you know, I just want to start off the interview with a quote from one of the police inspectors, and I think we, that, that kind of we need to set the scene here, and perhaps then you can explain what happened. In, so the police inspector says, in shutting down our safe protest on Good Friday... Oh, sorry, it was a quote from you, and you were talking about the inspector. In shutting down our safe protest on Good Friday, Inspector Tom Ebinga from Derribin Police said protest activity is not an exemption. They were here for an honourable purpose, but community health has got to take priority for us, and protest activity isn't legal in the current environment. Can you just tell us what happened, Lucy? So on Good Friday, there were uh, about 30 or 40 refugee activists who held a car and bike convoy in solidarity with the refugees who were held in MITRE Detention Centre. We're really gravely concerned about their health because they're not able to do any physical distancing. And as you've covered on your show, the problems inside prisons and detention centres um, health-wise, particularly um, uh, in terms of COVID, are pretty extreme. They're like uh, cruise ships on land. So we, we're, we're concerned about their human rights. We're eternally concerned about that, but particularly urgent is the health concern. So we held a protest. Um, we were in our cars and on our bikes, totally distant, not in contact with each other, except, um, you know, visually um, covering our, our vehicles in messages of solidarity. Uh, we drove around the, um, the mantra and we honked in solidarity and some of us were playing um, 
one of the um, refugees detained there. We were playing our playing his music on our speakers and so on, but um, we were um, uh, pulled over and fined. So there were um, 30, 30 of us were fined on the day, and we didn't know it at the time, but actually earlier that day, Chris Green from RAC had been arrested. So six police went to his door, um, arrested him, took him to the police station in Preston, held him there for about 12 hours and charged him um, with incitement, which, as you mentioned, is a 1958 um, act and it hasn't been used except on um, protesters. So um, we we were, you know, obviously um, outraged about this. I mean, the, the, the kind of health concerns that the police cited when they were... Um, finding us were only a problem when we were asked to wind down our windows and the police stuck their heads in our cars. Um, we were there to show care and compassion with the refugees there and we were pretty outraged that Daniel Andrews is using these extraordinary powers not to release the refugees that are in detention in his state, but to uh, police the people who are trying to stand up for their rights. Absolutely, and so so people have been fined, and what happens now? Is there a court case? That's right. So people um, have to pay. No, we're we're not paying. So Chris is um, exactly. automatically going to be taken to court. That's right, and we um, the people who were fined on that Good Friday have decided we've committed not to pay the fines. We've put in requests for internal review with the police. Um, and if it comes to it, we'll also challenge the fines in court. Um, we think we have pretty a pretty good basis to challenge them. But um, we, subsequent to our protest, because we're not, I mean, we're, we're committed to it, and like we, you know, we're outraged about the fact that we were fined. But the real heart of the problem remains that there are refugees still held in detention. So we Absolutely. wanted to find a way to um, to continue our action and draw attention to the problem. We organised an exercise protest because it's legal to exercise outside. So we thought we would do our state-mandated exercise out the front of the Mantra Detention Centre. But again, we were threatened with massive fines. Um, the police committed to over the phone to me to, um, to police the action again in the same way that they had in the last time. So we called off the action. Um, three people turned up nonetheless. And they were given five fines between them. So three people were fined five times. This is now hang on, when was uh, this? Which, which action was called off? This is this is Saturday. Um, the Saturday so, just gone. Yeah, the Saturday just gone. Okay. So we postponed our action to this coming Saturday. So we will have our action this Saturday. We just postponed it to kind of gather our forces and see what the oh. um, announcements today were. Um, but three people showed up nonetheless. They were pretty committed. They didn't get the message. They were um, harassed by police for um, standing out the front with their sign. They weren't They weren't um, closer than two metres from each other. They were just doing their exercise with signs out front of the detention centre. Actually, as of midnight tomorrow night, there are restrictions being... some restrictions being lifted somewhat. And I believe that you can have 10 people congregate outdoors. It'll be very interesting to see what happens when, you know, when you stage another protest outside the Mantra. They can't get you then. 
Well, I would have thought that they couldn't get a cell. I mean, when did the no, but, right well, they can't. Well, no, what I'm trying to say is, what, what I'm trying to say is, they can't get you under the, the, the guise of public health regulations, Lucy. Because you, I, you I can hope have you're right, people. and I think you're right. Sorry? Yeah. I'm sorry? I think you're right. I think you're probably right. Yeah, because right. you can have 10 people congregating outdoors. They can't arrest you under public health regulations because you can go there, you can have 10 people at the protest. I mean, obviously you'll have more. But what I'm saying is they cannot do that. As long as you practice social distancing, they cannot, they cannot get you or arrest you or fine you under public health regulations. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you're probably, and I hope you're right, but... I mean, the I am kind right. of ill, the ill will Well, it's not about me being right. It's about the law being right. Do some research yeah. on it. There's an article in the Herald Sun about it. And no, it actually I, outlines... I... Sorry? <laughs> no, I agree with you that the laws have changed. I understand that. I'm just saying that the police have just shown such ill will towards us that it wouldn't surprise me if they bent the law oh, against sure. us once again. Which brings me to my next point, Lucy. Thank you for that, for highlighting that, because... Um, you've, you're, you're absolutely correct in that of grave concern is the fact that not only were protesters fined, but also there are a number of salient points here that I'd like to say. And that is that the protest wasn't allowed to go ahead on Good Friday and nor was it allowed to really go ahead on Saturday. So I think of grave concern is the fact that the fact that Chris Breen was arrested the fact that he was um, detained at the police station with, for nine hours without food, the fact that he was driven... These things have to be said, Lucy. The fact that he was driven um, back to his house and was raided, those are all very, very strong features of the Patriot Act that is, is happening in America. And often what happens in America, and it's happening here too, and it's happened over many years, is that, you know, the, 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 so, the, the police think that they're so-called leaders of groups mm. and it's divide and conquer and they're arresting the, lead, the leaders of who they think are leaders of these movements and putting them away. What do you say to that? Can you comment on that? Yeah, I, I, I would totally agree with you. I think the police just feel like they've been given 100 birthdays at once with these police powers um, and they're you know, their attempt to kind of intimidate us by um, particularly going after Chris Breen in an attempt to make other people who might be organising protests and so on um, nervous. I think it's been, yeah, like a very deliberate act on their part. Yeah, and I'm hoping that it's going to be harder for them, although I don't think... I think they, they will arrest. Not that I'm wanting to speculate, but... You know, they're saying the right to protest is definitely being eroded. And meanwhile, as you say in the media, in the RAC media release, the men in the mantra have suffered and are suffering a range of chronic medical conditions, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. That's, I mean, they were brought to Australia because of the campaign, um, well, the Medivac legislation that the refugee campaign and the refugees themselves won over years of, of kind of pushing because they are medically vulnerable and the health has been eroded for so many years from so many years in offshore detention. So they came here with um, chronic health problems. They've been holed up in detention centres. In fact, 
many of them haven't even had the medical treatment that they were brought here to access. So, you know, the, the, the concern that we have for their health is, is pretty major. Um, and, and once again, I mean, you raised the point about the police powers. One, one thing that we're concerned about in RAC is the fact that Daniel Andrews is considered a very, um, a very uh, progressive premier. He's, he's considered yeah. by the left, I think, probably the most progressive premier in yeah. Australia. And yet he has so, um, you know, overpowered and, and, and funded the police and the prison system so much um, and, and done nothing about the situation of refugees in his own state when he really easily could have. So, I mean, I think that's something that we want to highlight as well and put some pressure on the, on the state, um, on, on the state premier about that this is something that he could, he could have taken a very different um, tack on, but he didn't. And it's shameful. It is very shameful. And I'm hoping that, you know, this court case, I'm hoping that can set a precedent and also highlight some of those issues to the Premier. Yeah, I agree, Marissa. So last Monday, I believe that there was a public meeting, an online public meeting, and That's right. to, to free the refugees and defend the right to protest. Could you report back on that, Lucy? Yeah. Um, so last week we had a, a Refugee Action Collective Zoom public forum. Um, Julian Burnside... Um, the QC spoke and he spoke, he's a long-term refugee rights advocate and he spoke um, both in in support of refugees and also in support of um, the people who were fined and um, arrested and, and kind of talked to that point about the right to protest. Uh, we had refugees um, speaking, so um, Moz from inside the mantra and a refugee who's held in the Kangaroo Point Hotel in Brisbane, a kind of parallel situation up there, spoke about the conditions that they're held under. Um, Chris spoke about um, how he was arrested. And I think Craig Foster actually stuck around. So he, he's obviously been a champion of refugee rights and um, he, he also spoke towards the end of the meeting just about how we can build the profile of the campaign. So it was a it was a great meeting actually. It was a very powerful kind of coming together of lots of different um, refugees and refugee supporters to talk about furthering the campaign. And Lucy, I just wanted to just expand a little bit on the charge of incitement. That's a nineteen fifty eight law, isn't it? That's right. And so it's an anti protest law. How did the did the police, how were they able to use that law? I mean, sorry, to, yeah, to use that um, that charge. Yeah, I, d I mean, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer and I don't know the ins and outs no, no, of no. it. No, no, no. I think I'm going to get ask Julian Burnside to come onto this show at some stage, Lucy. Yeah, great and, idea. Yeah, I'd like to actually speak with him on the show because it would be very interesting to see you know, the charge of incitement, I mean, that's not part of the new health regulations, obviously. It's an anti-protest law from 1958. Mm. And as we know, historically, you know, the police and, and the military indeed have, have been used um, for Aboriginal communities, haven't they, you know, since 1788. Mm. And, and, and 1958, I mean, it'd be very interesting to find out more about that. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm told that the last time that that law, that incitement, 
law was used was for the Oz Study Five. So um, the a group of people who, for the Oz Study Five. So a group of people who were um, campaigning about Oz Study and cuts to Oz Study. The yeah. um, the five people who were arrested to do with that, they were charged with incitement. So it is a charge that's kind of almost exclusively used against left-wing people organising demonstrations and protests against the government. Lucy, this really is of grave concern. And I hope you haven't minded, but I've deliberately extended your interview today because I have I have just made it my priority during this COVID-19 pandemic to really highlight some of the issues that have come out of it, not only in terms of increased police powers, but also in terms of um, looking at the right to protest and how that's being eroded. And I'll be honest with you, like, I had a feeling this was going to happen. I mm. knew that was going to happen. Yeah. I knew even I before the protest happened that that was going to happen. It was just a safe car cavalade, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think you're right that it was so opportunistic of, of the government to, to go down this path. It kind of gave them cover because we were all so concerned about our health and, and worried about that, and rightly so. Um, but it just gave them such an opportunity to um, to crack down on the right to protest in a really very concerning way. And as you said, like, they're, they're easing the restrictions. I think it's really important that we do make sure, as you've said, that we use those easing of the restrictions to restore our right to protest, that we kind of test it and push it at every step of the way to insist that, you know, 10 people being allowed out together to, to exercise our leisure or whatever the terminology in the legislation is. No, no, that yeah. We, we, do, we do actually use that to protest and come together and, and, and that's what we will be doing next weekend on Saturday at 2pm. We will be in groups of 10 at social distance at the Bell Street at Mantra protesting there for, for the refugees who are inside the Mantra. Yeah, 10 people that... And, and then what can they do? What, well, 10 people. Research it, Lucy, and you'll see what I, I mean. I don't know. I totally. I saw it. You know, I, I, I was anxiously looking at the ABC website today because I know that we've got this protest coming up, and I'm concerned about it. And I do think that you're probably right. Although I guess my, as as you said, that we can't trust the police that they've been using no, all no, of these laws. No, no. But I'm not suggesting we can't trust the police. Of course, we can't yeah. trust the police. What I'm yeah. saying is that with ten people and social distancing, that is within the health regulations. Yep. That's within the health regulations. Yeah, that's right. Now, the, are you allowed to actually say when the court date is on air? Because obviously we need to drum up support. We don't have dates yet, but we will okay. definitely drum up support and we'll let you know, Melissa. Lovely. All right, Lucy. Well, thank you so much. And I suppose there's no use um, announcing the meetings, is there, anymore? Oh no, we're still we're still meeting on Zoom every Monday night at six thirty PM. So jump on the oh, Rack Facebook page to find out um, the Zoom link. Everybody who cares about refugees is very welcome. Oh, that's good. Well, it's fantastic that the meetings aren't closed because often what tends to happen with situations like this is that people become frightened and they close the meetings and they, you know, they don't allow people in it anymore. So I'm really happy that. You, you guys haven't succumbed to the climate of fear because often that's yeah. what happens. And, you know, historically, even with the Black Panther movement and, you know, all of those, those um, movements, it's, it's about divide and conquer. So 
tr- make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, thanks for that, Marissa. I totally agree. Lucy, thank you so much for coming onto the program. Thanks, Marissa. It was a pleasure as always. Thank you, and we'll talk soon. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. G'day. My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. For a coat of wine Thick or thin, right or wrong In the cold and in the heat We'd cross over Smith Street to the end of the line Up Gertrude Street, 
shore And we'd stop at the builders to see Who we could see Then we'd bite around Until we'd score A flagon of McWilliams Paul Enough to take away our misery renew your subscription, make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 94198377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Time show where you just heard an interview with Lucy Honan from the Refugee Action Collective speaking about freeing the refugees and also about Chris Breen who was arrested um, under the with the charge of incitement coming out of a 1958 law definitely anti-protest and not public health re- regulation and next up on the show we're going to be speaking with Brett Collins from Justice Action Brett better late than never Yes, good day, Marissa. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. I, we were talking to the West Australian uh, coroner about deaths in custody, and we we're trying to get uh, really? something How did that go, Brett? more effective there. Now, well, you know, really important actually, because uh, what we've discovered is that deaths in custody are only reported in each state, but they don't uh, transfer information uh, where a recommendation is made that affects everyone in all other states. They never get told. So you have um, like a death in custody up in Northern Territory where. They highlight, highlight that you should not hold a prisoner down in a certain way and no one ever gets told about it. So we have uh, uh, that sort of, um, you know, breaking down of information and ensuring it's distributed properly is very important. And the uh, West Australian Reg- uh, coroner is uh, interested, so that would be a good thing. So was that in regards to a specific inquest or was it just in general? Well, it was. It was actually the David Dungay inquest was one that highlighted it. That, uh, we discovered that in the Northern Territory in 2009... There were two people who died in, by being held down on their stomachs and had some knees pushed into their back where the, the person wasn't able to breathe and they died of uh, what they call positional asphyxia. 
And so the, the coroner actually brought recommendations down that uh, that no one should be held in that way at all. But uh, here we are, 2015, and um, five years later, and uh, and so uh, the same thing happened in, in New South Wales with uh, David Dungay. And then in Queensland, we found also there was another case there um, where the same thing happened, and no one from any other state or territory was told about uh, what the coroner's findings were. So that's, that's obvious that um, that there should be transfer of information. The lack of concern by um, by uh, coroners, even coroners, and certainly by law enforcement agencies to ensure that information was trans- transferred, that never happened. It shows that they don't really care. That's the truth of it. Wow. So, so, the, so Justice Action is going to do some work with the West Australian coroner? I'm not hearing you, actually, actually there, Marissa. Sorry. So Justice Action is going to be doing some work with the West Australian coroner? Oh, absolutely. No, look, the following is, in fact, we're actually putting for a national database that would, would require not only coroners to transfer their own information and distributed probably to other coroners, but uh, it's the sort of thing that should happen centrally with uh, not only transferring information but making sure that each of the uh, jurisdictions, like each of the police forces and each of the corrective services and health departments to hold people down and, um, and uh, you know, physically control them, that they have the information and are properly trained and they, they also feed back to the, to the coroner um, and the state governments in each area and um, what they are doing to implement the recommendations. And how receptive was the coroner to those suggestions? Uh, sorry, Ms. I'm not hearing you very well. How, how receptive was the coroner to those suggestions? Okay. Uh, what am I going to do? I'm going to put something in my hearing aid if you don't mind. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> sorry this That's all mind. right, Brett. All good. You still there? And we're with the Doing Time show and... Yeah, doing the show remotely right. from home can, can cause a few problems. I, yeah. I can rest, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm here now. Sorry, I can hear much better. That's okay. No, that's all right, Brett. All good. <laughs> Brett is a very much-loved guest on our show, and he's been he's done some wonderful work with Justice Action. So, so Brett, I was just going to ask you, how, how receptive was the coroner to those re- suggestions or recommendations look, of Justice look, Action? It's very... Yeah, okay, look, very receptive, actually. Like, we were really, really pleased because, uh, uh, like, from the point of view of the coroner, it's a woman in, in Western Australia. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense for the work that they've done and looking really carefully at a death in custody and coming up with careful recommendations that that information is then transferred to all other states and territories. It's to their benefit um, that, that that's, um, the, their work is actually properly uh, exposed to other, other areas. So, uh, look, that's, they're a natural ally. And we had actually the same sorts of, um, like, quite a significant goodwill also from, from New South Wales as well. And in Victoria, Absolutely. I think there was acknowledgement, but we didn't actually have something as strong from Victoria. So, you know, we'll certainly go back to each of the coroners and make sure that, that they, uh, first of all, acknowledge the email and they will push it through. So uh, we're very determined people, as I'm sure you're aware. <laughs> Absolutely. Brett, no, that's, that's great that we were able to talk about deaths in custody. And, in fact, some weeks ago now... Just at the beginning of all these this COVID nineteen pandemic, we did speak with Latoya Rule about her brother Wayne Feller Morrison, and spoke in detail about that inquest. So that's great that we're able to talk about that today. But let's start off a discussion here about prisons and COVID nineteen, and I'm wondering if you could just comment on what's happening with with prisons and what what is Justice Action's standpoint, and is there work that you're doing? in regards to that? Because obviously so is, there's no social distancing in prisons. 
Right. Look, obviously, you know, this is very significant. I mean, the most important thing is that as soon as the, the infection enters prisons, there is no way they can stop it from flowing through it. So at the moment, they, in, in New York and, uh, and Ohio, they have 70% of, in, of prisons are infected. And they have, of, of the guards, uh, something like 3,000 guards are, are infected in New York City. So you have this immense uh, infection rate running through the jails. It means when you have um, that occurring, there's uh, also a much more vulnerable population inside prisons. There are many older people, many people who are compromised, um, have compromised health systems. And so they're, they're normally 10 times the rate of deaths inside prisons as they are out in the general community. So we, we're talking about now a major health issue and, um, and also um, the obligation of each of the health departments um, to ensure that now their uh, guidelines for social distancing uh, is adhered to inside the prisons. It's absolutely essential. And, and so to have avoided that and to avoid ensuring that you know, all the other necessities that is out in the general population are also uh, are adhered to inside the prisons is amazing. And so it was wonderful to see a, a prisoner, um, a, a prisoner himself, down in, in Victoria, actually run his own case, and then have really good support from legal legal people in behind him, and do as well as he did. That, that's Mark Rawson. He did very, very well. That's great. I mean, well, it's not great, but it's great that Justice Action is is doing some work in this area. What do you think, Brett, are the are the main issues facing prisons in New South Wales? Is there is there actually have they freed any of the prisoners that are, that are on non so-called non-violent offences? Because obviously, look, they haven't. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the key thing is that there was a law brought in um, rapidly in uh, behind March, I think March the seventeenth or so, where where it was decided that all the prisons would be locked down, and then in the following week. They then brought into legislation a power for the commissioner to release prisoners in New South Wales. And it was really up to him to make the decision himself and effectively to release them on parole. And that was something that other states and territories thought, wow, that's a, that seems like a, you know, like a rapid move and, and, a, and, a, and a necessary move. And they all stood by with the same sorts of ideas that they would have to release prisoners. So different states and territories have different powers to release prisoners and, and um, you know, towards the latter part of their sentence or um, people who are older and more vulnerable. And there were certain categories of prisoners who were going to be released. And, and that was what was anticipated. But so far, not a single prisoner has been released in New South Wales on the back of the authority that the commissioner has given. People are being released for other reasons. The parole board, for example, has been deliberately is voicing its concern about COVID and saying that they intend to ensure that less people are in prison. But the proportion is actually, oh, it's only just my news. And, and there are also courts, a number of the Supreme Courts have already said that um, people will be released on, on bail in conditions that they normally wouldn't have if it wasn't for, the, for the, um, the impending infection. But, I mean, I think probably the most important thing inside prisons at the moment is not only that feeling of impending doom, but it is that every jail has been locked down. There have been no, no visits now for six weeks, eight weeks. And, and, and that has had an immense effect on the morale of people inside prisons, being locked down, separated from their families, um, not having the promised access to things like tablets and you know, video conferences and things like that. Those things haven't happened. And so people are angry and understandably so angry and concerned. So there's been a lockdown, so they're not, they're not even allowed to go outside for exercise? 
No, no, no. People are still getting exercise, but it, but it depends on which prisons are, are affected. Yeah. Like some prisons have actually gone into full defence, and, and when there's any suggestion at all about uh, uh, you know, one of the guards being infected, they've immediately locked down the, you know, the whole cell block and the whole yard, the whole the whole uh, prison has been locked down in some situations. I know up in up in uh, southern Queensland, uh, Walsall has been locked down, and there were uh, I think five guards there who were uh, found uh, to be infected, and so as a result. All the prisoners were locked down inside the jail. Now, that has had an immense effect on everyone there, apart from the fact that they've also lost, lost um, the visits as well. They've been locked in their cells, and people are howling. Well, that's one of the, that's one of the, the things that's actually helped keep me going during this lockdown, actually, Brett, because really, you know, with lockdown and with people on the outside, you can go out and get takeaway. You can go out to the park and exercise. And, you know, this is nothing really compared to what people in prison are experiencing and also refugees as well. Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, the, the reality of it is, is that, you know, they feel as though they've been abandoned. Uh, they don't doubt at all that if the infection were to, to enter the prison, that there would be very little health sympathy, that the respirators inside the, inside the prisons would be, um, would be unlikely to cope with the demands. And there's no question that the deaths in, in New York... Um, it would be mirrored here in Australia without a doubt. I, I think all the health authorities accept that the moment that the infection enters the prisons, that there will be no way it can be stopped. And I think that's... I know. Well, what's going to happen? I mean, the, Brett, we all know that the healthcare system doesn't extend to prisoners. Not really. What would happen if there was a, an epidemic in prison? What would Look, happen? I don't think there's any... Look, I think we need only look at what has happened in in, uh, in the United States and happened in other countries as well. The reality of it is, is that the guards are the ones who are moving in and out every day. That they, if they are asymptomatic, it means that they cannot be detected as to whether they carry the virus or not. They can pick the virus up in the community and will, will bring it back into the into the prison. They will hold the rails, they'll touch the rails, they'll, they'll um, uh, hold keys, they'll move a whole range of things there, which are common um, uh, uh, areas for other guards and also for prisoners to hold. Hold and touch and transfer to their mouths, to their food, and, and the infection will move through the jail like wildfire. And so that's... I mean, uh, exactly. Yeah. Yes. So Yes. Indeed. How are they going to flatten the curve if there's going to be clusters and outbreaks in prison? Oh, look, I, I think it really comes down to um, a, a lack of concern by the managers inside the prisons. I think there's a general feeling that, oh, well, um, uh, no, the, um, these, these prisoners have, um, you know, are involved in um, some sort of misbehaviour in the past, uh, and who cares too much? And I think there's an era of that happening in here. I think that I think that um, the case, like the legal case that Mark Rosen uh, uh, took up to the Supreme Court um, only a, only a week or so ago, was extremely important because it really it really drove um, uh, uh, into the courts. Obligation. It's responsibility to say, you know, you 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 have an obligation to ensure that those and the cares that are um, uh, the, the the care that applies to the general community must also apply in the prisons. And it was interesting that the national cabinet, the national cabinet, we're talking about um, uh, Scott Morrison and in his in his cabinet, and then on the following Monday, um, I, I came up with a, a, a an examination of what's called the. Communicable Diseases Network Australia National Guidelines. So the following, following the Friday decision by the Supreme Court in the case of Mark Rosen, 
the national pattern of Bender said these things need to happen. And every state and church has been told they need to look at the at what are the um, their their risk um, assessments and what do they have to do. There are obligations to ensure that people have protective um, uh, equipment that they have soap they can wash themselves. They a whole range of things um, that are obliged they're obliged to do. And now every state and territory, every jail, every jail throughout the whole of Australia is obliged now to look at its um, at its uh, risk, make a risk assessment, and ensure that prisoners are probably being um, probably able to defend themselves against um, any infection in future. And that's a good thing. You know, it came out of Victorian prisons, and that came from a prisoner initiative. Mark Rosen's um, Mark Rosen drove that, and it was very important. Well, in that case, why aren't they conducting risk assessments now? All they can, all that the government can say, all that corrections can say, is that there's been no COVID nineteen. COVID-19 in prison. Why aren't they well, conducting it, the risk assessments now? Well, you see, every state and territory said after that meeting on as I say, Monday, Monday of last week, they said that they would agree that there would be personal protective equipment, a whole range of things, supplies would become available, and, and, and there were things like, for example, Aboriginal prisoners, when they were being, were being released, would be given special travel priority to go back to their to the um, areas where they had had been released. So a whole range of things um, were required to come in as a result of that Supreme Court case. So very significant, actually. And um, and When's when's that going to be happening, Brett? uh, Well, it should be happening right now. It should be happening right now. In fact, prisoners should actually already see um, certain uh, more important supplies, significant supplies being distributed inside their prisons. It should be happening now. Um, And there will be like a report um, back from the prisoners to, um, um, to, well, to the court, particularly the court in Victoria. So the Victorian Supreme Court has demanded right, that these reports come back to us to explain um, what each of the prisoners is doing um, in preventing the infection from entering the prisons and, and also if it were to enter the in, in prisons, what they're going to do to ensure that it does not um, uh, affect people like Mark Rosen. And they, that's what they, that was the focus of the case. And um, it'll be, it, it shook them. It definitely shook them. It was good to have the courts um, uh, uh, respond as they had to um, to ensure that the, uh, the health protections that are available in the general community is also extended right, to prisons inside these cells. And that was a, that was a good starting point. But, but, of course, there's all the other stuff as well. What about, what about the rights to visits? What about the rights to... Um, what about the promised tablets in cells where people are entitled to um, have their... Um, the audio-visual visits, the email contacts and things like that. What about those Especially things now. that were promised? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the, well, this was, the, this was the trade-off. The trade-off was, well, if the visits are, are, to, be, are to be ceased um, and, and yeah. if, if that contact with the family isn't in, intended to be um, uh, uh, um, continued, um, then the trade-off was that prisoners would then have tablets in their cells. And that's been given, apparently been given to two prisons here in here in New South Wales, but we understand that in other states and territories it hasn't happened yet. It's appalling. Now just to clarify, Brett, when you say report, what do you you mean there's going to be a report a report forthcoming? Or are you talking about yes. the report for court? I, no, there has to be a report back to the court. So the Supreme Court itself has said and the, and the yes. judge himself is some um, uh, his um, name I haven't got in front of me. But um, but the Supreme Court said said um, that uh, uh, there would be an obligation on Port Phillip 
right? But it extends to all, yes. all of the prisons in, 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 in Victoria. Uh, yes. Back to the court to explain what they have done and what is their risk assessment and how have, and, oh. and that they have abided by that risk assessment. That's why the following Monday, um, there was the National Cabinet that considered, um, considered that report and said that they would abide by these, these uh, guidelines. They're the, uh, the, it's called CDNA guide, National Guidelines Prevention of, um, uh, and Control of Public Health Management and, uh, and Outbreaks Inside Correctional and Detentional Facilities in Australia, which of course includes refugees. So equally affected by them, affecting them as well. Absolutely. And in fact, none of this information has been forthcoming in mainstream well, media. These things are not talked about. They're simply not talked about. You know, it's all talking about the public, you know, the community and how COVID-19 is affecting the community. But there's not very, very much in the media around what we're talking about here in prisons. And... I'm not sure if you're aware, Brett, but um, 3CR is actually is actually closed to the public right now and to programmers. And I'm actually doing the show. A lot of us are doing the show remotely from home. And, ah, yes, you know, I, I was yes, yes. It's so important, isn't it, that we we actually talk about our prisoners. We need to talk about our Aboriginal brothers and sisters in prison and and vulnerable communities. And it's it's. I'm hoping that there can be a cohesive and coordinated plan to be able to address the human rights of prisons within the context of the coronavirus. Look, absolutely. I, I think several things have come out of, out of this, Marissa. I mean, look, one obvious thing is that, is that there is, a, is a, a basic entitlement for people to be safe. And that's what the Victorian Court laid down. I said that the risk assessments have to be abided by. And the risk assessment will will be very interesting to see what they say about the the question of social distancing on that one, because quite clearly, if you have two or three people living in a room that's the size of your bathroom, social distancing is not possible. Um, so there is a very significant issue there they'll have to deal with. That's number one. And then the entitlements of people to maintain contact with their families over this period, an extended period. It's not only a period that's it's just a matter of a few weeks. We're talking about some months. So it will mean that the, that the promises that have been made about tablets for people in, in cells um, will be, must be carried out. That's an obvious one that will come out of this one. And it means that all the courses and all the rehabilitation um, opportunities that tablets provide will also, will also come through. So those things are all, all really clear. Um, but, but um, look, there will be a lot of things that um, will follow through on this. And I think, I think the right to communication, the right to, um, to proper health treatment is important. And then the last thing is, is there was a very um, similar situation for people who are in aged care facilities. Now, um, over the last little period, aged care facilities have, have actually become closed down as well. Um, yes. Really, in, it seemed to be um, a, a, like an area of particular vulnerability just as in prisons. In fact, most times they talk about aged care facilities and prisons in the same breath. But then the Prime Minister stepped in, as of last week, weekend before last, and said that he was, he was um, uh, very dissatisfied with the fact that, that aged care facilities were being closed down and not being available for visits, visits to TLN. And what he was really highlighting there was that there's currently a Royal Commission looking at abuses in aged care facilities. And the fact that visitors were not being allowed meant that it meant that the supervision by outsiders into aged care facilities was not happening anymore. 
Now, the same thing applies for prisons. You find even the inspector general, inspectors of, of, of prisons aren't going in anymore. And it means the visitors are not going in to see their families anymore. So to read the same arguments applies equally to prisoners as it did to aged care facilities. That visitors are essential, and the same entitlement for prisoners to have their visitors um, exists as it was for Scott Morrison to say that the visitors into aged care facilities should have them too. And that's an argument we, uh, we will be pursuing, and we want to make sure that the, the, that the entitlement for visitors to go in again is properly um, supported and argued, and 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 we get the we get the, um, access in the way um, that prisons are entitled and families are entitled um, uh, to have. I'm so glad that you mentioned that, Brett, because it's so important. It's so important. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, family family uh, contacts. Yep. Yeah. Getting back to just one last question, just in regards to the Supreme Court and, and the risk assessment, Brett. Just to, I just want to clarify something here. So, how, how did that start? Like, how did it actually get to the Supreme Court? Look, it was Mark Rosen himself who actually initiated it. It was actually it, very. It, it, okay. it was it, Mark Rosen. He, he, he's in Port Phillip Prison. He's a prisoner serving, I think, five years according to the judgment yeah. of the court. And um, so he's, he's done a you know a bit of his time. I think maybe three years of his five. And so he's not. Not right towards the end, but he's a guy. He's, a, he's got a, you know, a few vulnerabilities in his health, and and some of his case was a sympathetic case. Um, so the so he he present, took initiated his own case and took it up to the Supreme Court. And and um, oh. the fact that he was able to do it says a lot. It says that you know there's room there for individuals, right, individual yes. prisoners to 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 oh. have enough um, uh, drive and some um, and commitment and use this use the levers they have. Um, to initiate court cases themselves because they have legal rights, more important legal rights than most other people have. The, the state, when it holds people, has equally an obligation to ensure that the, and those, those people can uh, assert their rights against the custodians. That's their obligation. And so that's really interesting. And it allows people like Mark Rosen to do so, and he used it to um, uh, uh, very strongly and got lawyers and barristers and, and some Fitzroy Legal Service came in beside him, and, some, and they had a very significant human rights barrister presenting the case, and, and it was taken very seriously. And, some, and the Port Phillip Prison was, was told, you know, you've got things to do, and, some, and it's on its toes now, as is National Well, I'm Cable. hoping... Well done, Mark I'm Rosen. hoping... Yes, yeah, sorry, Brett. I'm hoping that that's going to impact, you know, on, on the coronavirus, um, how do I say, on the COVID-19 um, regulations to try and uh, and improve things there for, for prisoners. Oh, it's absolutely. Right. Look, yeah. yeah, no question. No question. It will have that impact. And, some, and so look, there's no question that the, that the, uh, the uh, prison system, systems across Australia have been um, much affected. It's not... It's now at centre stage. They have things they have to do, and and some and I think there's a lot more attention. I agree, it's not enough, but there's a lot more attention now looking at prisons, and and some. I'm sure we'll hear more about that, and I'm sure prisons themselves will have expectations of first of all special duty of care, and also access to communications, which is um, which is uh, they're entitled to assert and and true yes. respect, true respect. Thank you, Brett, so much for coming on the program. We've got about a minute left. Thank you so much. Keep up the good Thank work. You, we'll talk very soon. Okay, lovely. Okay, lovely Take talking care. to you. Okay. Thank you. Again, you too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Three CR are selling Kafia Palestinian scarves in support of the
the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And it's absolutely um, the end of the show. Um, Beyond Zero up next, and it's goodbye from Marissa and the rest of the Doing Time team. And thanks to our guests for participating in the show. Stay tuned every Monday from 4 to 5pm for the Doing Time show. We'll be going out with our theme song, Blackfella, Whitefella, from the Rumpy Band. Bye, stay safe, look after each other. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.